We're here to share some stories of impact. At Echelon Front, we get to see the impact with so many different leaders across so many different industries of the leadership principles that, that we teach. And one of those incredible leaders is here with us today, Chief Roger Shy from Pocatello Police Department. And uh, he is uh, a tremendous example of what good leadership should look like. Someone who has taken these principles, applied them in, uh, in his world, in his police department, and, uh, and has created an environment where larger metropolitan police departments across the country have reached out to you to ask you uh, how you're successful. What are you doing? You know, how are you taking these principles? How are you running your training? Uh, which I think is a real testament to uh, your leadership. And, uh, and it's awesome to have you here with us today. Thanks for making the trip down, Chief, to, uh, uh, to Austin from, from Pocatello. Yeah, uh, humble to be here, Leif, and uh, to be part of this and just spread the message about uh, how powerful this, this stuff works. I mean, it does, truly. And I wanted to just give a little background about you uh, for those that don't know you, so you're you're the chief of police for Pocatello Police Department. Pocatello is a city in uh, southeastern Idaho, uh, about sixty thousand people, and uh, you've been in, in law enforcement for about almost thirty years now at this point, um, and you've been the police chief there for over four years. Just just this is my fourth year right now. Fourth so, year. Yep. And this is uh, just a little bit about about where you you know you you grew up in, in San Diego. I'll let you talk about that here in a second. Um, but I think for for you and your uh, your bio here, um, just just some of the highlights of, of some of the things that, that you've done. Um, you've got about a hundred sworn officers, is that correct? And about about fifty civilian um, uh, employees as well. Um, Idaho State University is in Pocatello, and you've got a great relationship with them. I know you've had a, uh, a great recruiting program out of Idaho State, particularly from the football team. And go Bengals, uh, go Bengals! It's uh, one. I know you're you're, an, you're a graduate of the FBI National Academy, um, and you're also uh, post executive uh, uh, certified uh, in the state of Idaho as well. Yeah, class number two fifty seven from the FBI National Academy back in two thousand fourteen. Outstanding. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, the thing that I'm, I'm most impressed as I've visited with you and spent time with you is how you have created a tremendous culture of decentralized command, how you live and breathe these principles and how it's, it's, a, it's a part of the team. And uh, I remember being up in Pocatello with you, asking you a question, uh, how, uh, what do you do? Where do you position yourself when something bad is happening, you know, out in the field with your officers? What do you do? And, and your answer was, my guys are going to handle that. So you're going to be in a position where you can monitor the radio, where you can vector them resources. But that was something that immediately set you apart from just about every other senior uh, leader that I had worked with in law enforcement who wanted to be right there at the scene directing everything, you know, basically stifling their officers to, uh, to, and, and not trusting their officers to actually make decisions. And I think that's a testament to the training that you guys do, uh, to the trust that you have in your officers and the culture that you've, you've developed there. Um, and I think your community outreach as well has been extraordinary. Your relationship with Idaho State, and, uh, and with the community and the relationships that you've built with your city council and, and mayor and, and how that's become something that you've helped others around you uh, utilize as well. Those things have, have been a real highlight you know, for us to see uh, about what you're doing in Pocatello. And I think it's a great example that, that other uh, departments across the country can, can emulate. Yeah, the definition of chaos that the, uh, the line staff has is chief has arrived on scene. So I make sure it's a point for me not to arrive on scene and create chaos. So... Uh, you know, the principles work. It's, uh, it, it takes time, though. It takes time to build that culture. And uh, when you have that culture in place and everybody understands the mission in the end state, I think that that's real important, too. And 
when you uh, communicate that successfully uh, by doing readbacks and making sure that everybody understands what my intent is, because oftentimes what's in my head doesn't come out my mouth. So, or I say something that the message doesn't get conveyed the right way. That's 100% on me, and I need to make sure that, that that's communicated in a simple, clear, concise manner so that everybody knows what the mission is. They can go out there and, uh, and get after that mission. So, and, of course, we're big on building relationships um, in our community. We've got a lot of former student-athletes that work for us, so uh, 100% believe that in order for mission success, you have to have good relationships with your community. No doubt. Well, let's, let's talk about you for a second. So I know you grew up in San Diego. How did you end up in, in Pocatello? Like, what was your path uh, to becoming a uh, police chief there? So, yeah, I grew up in East County, uh, Santee Lakeside area. I started off my career with the San Diego County Sheriff's as an explorer. And uh, after that, my, my brother uh, lived what, in— What drew you into law enforcement in the first place? My brother. My brother was—he uh, started off with Riverside County, and then he ended up in Bannock County as a, as a deputy— and then he was a lieutenant uh, assistant commander in the jail up there. And he worked in patrol. I went on some ride-alongs with him. And so he kind of drew me into law enforcement. And there's pictures of, in fact, even better pictures of, of little me rolling around. And I like this tricycle uh, electric thing in a, in a helmet going around my house at about five or six years old um, down in California. So it's something that's always piqued my interest. Uh, I... There was a time where I wanted to be a pilot and, and looked into that, but my eyesight just wasn't up to up to snuff on that and uh, always was drawn to law enforcement. And my brother kind of pushed me that direction, and I ended up uh, relocating to Pocatello in 1993, and I tested with uh, like 350 people when I, when I tested, which is unheard of now. And I was 50th on the list, and I, it was a two-year list, and I was the last one to get hired off that list, so... So 350 people applied yeah. for the positions. Tested. 250 passed, and I was like, I was number, I was tied for number 50. And it was a two-year list. Now, now we get lucky if we get 10 people to show up to test. That's uh, an unfortunate uh, state of affairs for law enforcement. It, it is. Sure. But we will overcome. We'll, we're figuring out a way. We're maneuvering around it. And uh, uh, I'm hoping to be fully staffed here in my department by uh, – by May. So we've got some things in the works and some good things coming. So that's outstanding. What was your path from, you know, when you started working in Pocatello, um, how, did, how did you go from uh, being, you know, a junior police officer and up through the ranks to uh, taking over as, as a chief of police? Yeah. So I started off my career uh, for Pocatello Police. I was in the jail before that. And then uh, once I, I was a reserve in the jail, and then once I got hired on in 95, um, I just wanted to make it out of FTO. I wanted to be off probation. That was like my my goals then. And, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of rough lessons learned as a young patrolman. Um, you know, pretty early in my career, I got in a bad wreck, 100% my fault. Um, I talk about it when I teach at the academy and uh, made me change kind of how I do some things on responding to calls. And uh, my goal was just to be a sergeant. You know, I remember meeting my wife and saying, you know, I, I want to I be a sergeant and I'll retire as a sergeant and be good to go. Uh, but I, I was a, became a field training officer. That was one of the first things I, I did. And um, I got on our SWAT team. Um, I was a breacher, so broke a lot of doors and did a lot of training. We trained a lot with Vegas Metro, uh, built some relationships with those guys. And then we, um, I 
became a school resource officer. It was one of the last things I'd ever figured out that I, I'd want to do. But one of my mentors and one of my best friends, uh, Steve Williams, uh, said, he was doored up with me one night and he's like, hey, Raj, I'm going to go be an SRO. And I looked at him and I'm like, you are nuts. Like I was, I liked, you know, being in the action and, you know, driving fast and, you know, it's the unpredictability of patrol. And, and I'm looking at it and I did bodybuilding with Steve. I worked out, he was my workout partner. He was my wingman on SWAT. And here he is going to be from patrol to a school resource officer. So I ended up following him on that path. And the first two weeks, I was like, what am I doing here? And then I found my groove and I started to coach wrestling and, uh, you know, with the kids there and I had an after school weightlifting program. And I really took that opportunity to work with some youth of the community and changed a couple of lives, probably more than a few. But I, in fact, I had a kid just recently reach out to me and told me that the, the impact I had on him was, uh, was, uh, paramount in his life and it, it was a turning point for him his dad was in prison and he didn't have any positive male role models in his life and I kind of took him under my wing and and he's a dad now and he's got kids of his own and and, and he talks about those times where I was a school resource officer and it, it, to tell you the truth it actually turned out to be my favorite job in, in the department from there I got promoted I was a pat uh, patrol corporal a detective worked on some pretty interesting cases in, in up there the probably the biggest one that I worked on is we helped out Bannock County Sheriff's Department on uh, the Cassie Joe Stoddard homicide and uh, that one's made made some national news stories and um, a lot of when I look back at it, a lot of the laws of combat were implemented you know in there that's why we were successful uh, and then from there I got uh, uh, I tested, I got promoted to sergeant, and uh, I worked a patrol for a while, and then I became our training sergeant. Uh, I was In that time, I was president of our FOP lodge, president of our union. I became a patrol lieutenant, um, and all this time I became a firearms instructor, defensive tactics instructor, uh, which covers all the aspects of uh, our defensive tactics, which... Uh, led on to some things with post. I, I was teaching at the police academy. I was teaching for Utah Post as well with uh, Cindy Malman Associates, some leadership classes down there, um, and uh, just making a huge impact on our training. When I was our training sergeant, we switched up a lot of things, took a little bit of grief for how, we, how I changed some things, but uh, at the end of the day, it was uh, got our training program up and running and uh, spent a lot of time in training as firearms, defensive tactics, still on SWAT. Um, and then I ended up uh, resigning my position as SWAT as I moved up the chain um, and then uh, became a lieutenant in patrol. And at that point, I started to go, okay, now there were some things that were going on. It's like, I, I want to change some things. But in order for me to change some things, I needed my circle of influence to get bigger. And that kind of started off as a sergeant because I saw an opportunity and I like, okay, so I talk with my wife and then, okay, I'm going to be a, be a lieutenant. And, and then it, I saw that there was opportunities to make even better changes. And, and then I tested for captain. Uh, first time around, I, was, I finished fifth. I, I, didn't, I, and I was used to doing really good on assessment centers, but I finished fifth and I didn't get promoted. Other people got promoted ahead of me. I'm like, okay, cool, another opportunity, right? Good. Uh, so eventually I get promoted to captain. And uh, at that point, I started to realize, and I, I knew my chief uh, was going to retire in a few years, and I'm like, I really don't want to work for someone else. Um, and I, a lot of people from the department came and said, we, 
want you to throw your hat in the ring for, for the next the next opportunity. Uh, so at late in life, I finished my degree. I finished my degree as a captain online. I took all my credits and mashed them in together from University of Virginia and Grossmont College and a couple from ISU and uh, stuff I, I earned kind of on the side and mashed them together at Herzen University and finished my degree online. And um, so late in life, I became a better student because Back in the day at Santana High School, <laughs> I was not that good of a student. If the surf was good or there was snow in the mountains, yeah, I, 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 my, my attention was directed elsewhere. So later in life, I became a good student. And then, of course, went to the FBI National Academy, and my goals started to become bigger. And then our deputy chief had retired, and I, uh, I got that position as deputy chief. And that's when I started looking at the echelon front stuff. Um, and... Uh, started digging on what it would take to to get that to the department and then opening came for chief when uh, chief marchand uh, retired and i went through a pretty rigorous process on that and became chief of police in june of 19 uh, 2019. you you were a pretty junior candidate for that uh that position at that point right yeah i was in fact the the deputy chief that had retired came back and threw his hat in the ring and then um Another guy who was a our former one of our former city councilmen, um, and he was a, a warden of a jail, a warden of a prison, and um, was pretty high up on the state. He was actually uh, working. He was a U.S. Uh, working. He was our U.S. marshal uh, for a while over in there. So I had some pretty stiff competition to go up against, and younger than all those guys, and um, you know, just just came in and talked about some things that we did, building relationships with people, and, you know, uh, talked a lot about Sir Robert Peel's uh, principles of policing from 1829, and, you know, those, those have been kind of paramount for me my entire career, and I've believed in those things, and, you know, they, they work today, so. Well, that's a, that's an awesome path. I, I love what you said about you, you wanted to change some things, right, and so you needed your circle of influence to, to be bigger, um, and that, that sounds very similar to what Jocko's experience was when he was – he was looking up, you know, at that platoon commander um, that he talks about, Delta Charlie, you know, leadership strategy and tactics. And this guy made the he made life a lot better for those 16 guys in a SEAL platoon. He's like, one day I want to be able to do that. And and I think that's, uh, you know, I didn't get that experience coming as, you know, I came in into the Navy as an officer. Um, but I, I certainly, uh, I think that attitude of trying to make life better and improve things um, and, and, and obviously knowing the challenges that you're up against, you know, are, are immense. So. Um, I think that's uh, that's leadership for the right reasons, for sure. Well, I got a, I got the it's all on you, but it's not about you. I put that up right outside of my office. So every day I walk out of my office, I have to see that that slogan. And I know it's it's no, has nothing to do with me, but it has everything to do about the, the men and women that serve the department and the, and the community that they protect. So it keeps me in perspective and keeps me in check every day I see that. I put that up there. So it's for me to see that. So you mentioned that uh, when you were deputy chief, you came across Echelon Front and, and what we were doing. How, what, do you remember, like, what was the first exposure to that? My first exposure, I was over at the academy over in Meridian teaching, and one of the co-instructors in the class put on the good video. And I'm like, hey, that, that's pretty freaking cool. Like, I can align with that right there. And I mean, and then, I, you know, Jocko's got the look, and, you know, it's like, he looks kind of cool, right? I can I can dig that. So then I started digging on YouTube, right? Went down that rabbit hole and and uh, 
started, oh, he's got a podcast. Oh, he, oh, there's some books. Ooh, but I hate reading. <laughs> so um, I actually picked up the book and started reading and went, oh, yeah, I can align with this big time. This is good stuff. And, and I, one of the things that our department was really thirsting for from what I was hearing from the troops was we really want some leadership principles. We really want to know what direction the ship is going. And so I'm like, man, I got a blueprint right here. In law enforcement, we're big into SOPs or, you know, uh, standard operating procedures or a lesson plan or, you know, that's what Post always likes. And I'm like, man, this is like the lesson plan for leadership. It's a blueprint. And so when I started looking at that and then I started digging in, I got a hold of uh, Lynn Ortega, who happens to be from Idaho, and started looking at um, some, uh, some stuff on Echelon. And, and we decided to go the route on the online and so the online uh, introduced me to, you know, to everybody and, and the team, and, uh, you know, via Zoom because then COVID hit, right? And it's like no live events, no nothing. COVID hits, boom, right? And, and so all of a sudden it's like JP, I remember JP was on the, I think was on the very first one. And I, one of the very first lessons that, he, that I remember him saying is like, how much rope do you give your people? And he says, enough rope to let them tie a knot, but not enough rope to let them hang themselves. And I'm like, check right i thought that was pretty cool and so i'm i started watching and then it went from like one day a week to like every day right it was like there was nothing else going on and then all of a sudden jocko's on there and leif's on there i'm like oh this is this is legit man so um so i started on on the the uh extreme ownership academy i think it was, i can't remember what we called it back then but it was, it was uh, ef online ef online, EF online. Yeah, yeah so so then it was a different topic every day and i mean i've taking out my notebook and writing down notes and and it just started to be like okay this is good stuff right here and i'm you know we're gonna we're gonna start start down this path so then i got um everybody started off with just uh the the captains and above uh because i became chief in in that time i became chief and then uh when I, i discovered the the online academy and we got our captains and above up on that online academy and then lieutenants and above. And now it's, we got the sergeants and the civilian supervisors and above all have licenses to, to do their, uh, their, their monthly training. So that's kind of how it progressed and all off and watching the good video at the academy kind of on a break. So. Well, and and now we're, we're proud members of, uh, of Pocatello PD as well. So that's, uh, I'm certainly honored to be, be a reserve officer and, and, um, I'm looking forward to getting back and running some training for the, the team and uh, doing some work with you guys. You guys have a, an outstanding group, and um, it's it's an exceptional department. We work with police departments all across the country, and your department absolutely stands out as an exceptional department. And it's uh, you know that's from you know from the uh, the patrol officers to to your uh, you know your sergeants and, and lieutenants and captains and, and all the way up to the top. And it's funny to hear you say now that that. You don't you don't you don't read books because <laughs> your book is one of the most tabbed, underlined, highlighted, dog-eared books that I've ever seen. It's pretty awesome sitting there on your desk. And, I should have brought uh, it. Um, you know, it's 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 got love. It's got some love to it. How was it that? Because so many times when you know we know that these leadership principles work. You know, we've seen them work on the battlefield. We've seen them work with so many different businesses. But there are those folks, and particularly in the law enforcement world, that, that say things like, well, that doesn't apply to me, or, hey, that's combat stuff. That's totally different. You know, those guys have a totally – and obviously, there's, there's definitely some, some major differences. 
What was it that you initially saw where you, you realized like, hey, this applies directly to law enforcement? You know, I took the, the laws of combat and I, I started to look at them and go, well, how can that speak in our language? Like cover move, it's all about teamwork. So I, I think about the most basic principle of patrol, patrol work is we call it contact and cover. The contact officer, their job is to 80% of their attention is dealing with what's going on in front of them, dealing with the person they're contacting, 20% on everything else. So I've got to do that, and I've got to worry about contact. If I'm contacting Leif, and let's say JP's my cover officer, well, JP's going to position himself in a position of advantage to put you at a position of disadvantage, but 80% of his attention is on everything else, and 20% is on you. So he's going to be worried about, you know, the car driving by or the dude smoking a cigarette, you know, hanging out on the, on the, the sidewalk watching us or people that have their, their phone out recording us and making sure that they're not going to get in, in the business of the stop, right? So I'm like, cover move is contacting cover because if JP fails at his job, then I fail at my job, then, then the mission fails, so it's all about teamwork, uh, making a room entry, doing building search. If I go right and my partner goes right and then the number three officer goes right, well, no one went left or looked deep in the room. Everyone sucked into the corner. And so it's all about teamwork when we're clearing a building or, uh, you know, w regardless of what we do, working with dispatch. That's a, that's a key component right there, our, our non-sworn personnel. Like if dispatch fails, then we fail. We can't, if I don't get the information from dispatch or they miscommunicate an address for me, I can't successfully complete the mission. So that's, that's why it's, that, that's, it's so like, it just ties right in simple. I do readbacks every day. We go on a call, we, we whip out our handy dandy notebook, right? And we take notes in there and then I do a readback. So ma'am, what you're telling me is this is what happened. And then no, they add information. Okay, I'm, I misunderstood you. So then I write down the notes in my notebook. I mean, it's simple. That's the, the principle of simple. Prioritize and execute. We use prioritize and execute on everything we do. Secure the scene. Render aid. Identify victims, witnesses, and suspects. Conduct interviews. We collect evidence. We process that evidence. And then we write reports. And then we file charges. Everything is prioritize and execute in what we do. And then if we're, if, I always have this saying that objectives dictate tactics and your circumstances dictate your countermeasures. Well, if my, what's my objective? And then how can I prioritize those things to successfully complete that objective? And then if other things happen, those circumstances pop up, well then, those are the countermeasures that I implement, and I have to prioritize and execute all of those things. You know, uh, what's the driving force? And that's what, you know, prioritize and execute is all about. We do that every day. Uh, decentralized command. You know, for as much as it freaks out a lot of leaders to say, I don't want to implement decentralized command, they really are doing it every day because they're not going to be there telling their officers to make this traffic stop or make that traffic stop or write this ticket, write that ticket, or you know, oh, you got to make entry or not make entry. They're, they're making snap decisions out there that are under tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving circumstances uh, every day. So when I looked at the laws of combat, it's like, we're already doing this, and I just got to put them in, into, into phrases and terminology. And it's not like, you know, we're in combat with anybody, right? 
we're not at war with anybody out there. Our job as police officers, our mission is different. So if everybody understands the mission, and then this is how you apply the, the laws of combat and the mindsets of victory, I mean, it, it just made it really easy to plug and play and, and to look at it from that perspective. I think that's outstanding. As I mentioned before, I mean, that's one thing that really sets you guys apart is, is the trust that you have in your people to go out there and do their jobs. And, and, and that's, you know, we, we see this, it's not just in the law enforcement world, but in the business world too, where so oftentimes people will say things like, well, you're telling me to use decentralized command, but I, I don't trust my people. And then when I say, all right, well, let's look at your training program. How often are you sitting down? You know, are you are you sitting down weekly with your people and training them and actually putting them in situations uh, that that induce some stress, that are realistic, that that are going to enable them to perform their job better uh, and be able to make better decisions? And, and and that's in those places where the people are telling me they don't trust their people. That's not happening. They're not training people at all. So it never gets better. And I think that's. You know, one thing that I was very impressed with, you know, as, as, as Jocko and, and JP and I uh, came up uh, and Cody came up to train, train with you and work with your officers, uh, you guys have some great training programs going on all the time. And, uh, and it's, it's, you're, you're clearly investing in training, in realistic training that enables your people to step up and, and lead, uh, which is uh, the results speak for themselves. When your uh, officers have been in the most difficult situations possible, they have stepped up and performed well. Uh, which is a testament to your leadership. Yeah, you know, um, back in May uh, of last year, two of our guys were shot in the line of duty. Uh, the suspect had a rifle, and every other round it turned out to be uh, armor-piercing green-tip uh, ammunition. And uh, when they were both shot, we had people that were there. They both had trainees with them that were in their third day of training. And to watch those videos is, is, is truly humbling because to watch what happened, uh, uh, we had an officer, he was, he was shot in the face right, uh, right underneath his eye, and the bullet actually ricocheted down. He, he, he attested this today to drinking a strawberry trumu so, uh, to make his bones strong, but it ricocheted down and out his, out his neck into his chest, and the bullet came out of his chest um, and it collapsed his lung. It's hit three times in the armor uh, armor plate that we carry. Um, got hit in his fingers. It took off the tips of his fingers, bounced off his forearm, and then got hit in the stomach, and it skirted his stomach, nicked his liver. And then the other officer, same thing, hit his stomach, uh, nicked his liver, um, went around. And to watch how the, the trainees responded, to watch how the officers respond to that, everybody kept their cool. Everybody was making decisions all the way down to the, the newest people. Um, and then the other team of officers comes up and handles the bad guy. And the way they handle him was just with the utmost, I mean, even though this guy just shot two of our guys, man, they handled them the utmost professional and the dispatchers that handled it on the back end of things, how, how calm and collective they were. And, and, and then six months or one, one, one day later, uh, Mac walks out of the hospital. And then six days later, Demetrius walks out of the hospital you know, and I, and, and, you know, we communicated quite a bit about that. You know, it's like, what does winning look like, right? When two of your guys get shot with AR-15 and walk out of the hospital on their own two feet. And, and I attest that to, to training, equipment, and leadership. Those three things were, were key in, in that situation. And for the officers that were there to make the decisions that they made to, 
load the officers in the cars. And I mean, no one, no one was there barking orders. It was like, Hey, what do we need to do? Let's do this. And some of those decisions all the way down to the, you know, someone that was just out of field training to people that were three days into training to patrol officers that were on the scene, the sergeants that were on the scene, uh, making those decisions and getting them to the hospital, uh, you know, within a matter of minutes when that happened, that's uh, decentralized command at its, its, you know, greatest right there. And, and so at, at the most trying of times, that, I mean, that was probably the most trying thing I've been through as a, as a, as a leader is getting a phone call at two o'clock in the morning and telling two, two of our officers are shot and one of them is not looking good. And I mean, I know you've been in those situations before and that's, you know, as a leader, that's some of the most grueling things you can endure. But when you look back at it and you go, you know, as a leader, I gave them the best training I could, the best equipment that I could and, and empowered them to make decisions. That's, that makes me want to go even better and harder and want them to get more, more training and better equipment and, and empower them even more. So it's a driving force for sure. That's the, the worst case scenario to get a, get a call like that. But I think, you know, that could have, that call could have gone a lot differently. And, sure. you know, I'm, what I'm so impressed with those guys, uh, they, they continued to maneuver on the suspect and, and help neutralize the suspect, which, which prevented, uh, you know, uh, uh, things from getting uh, to enable them to actually walk away from that situation and continue to, um, uh, and, and recover, which it could have gone very differently. Yeah. Uh, for them and other officers that were responding had they not done that. And I think it's just it's a tremendous testament to their training, to the, the type of officers that, that that and the culture of your team that look, I've got I gotta handle this problem. And if I don't handle this problem, I gotta get default aggressive to handle that problem and, and neutralize the threat before um, you know other innocent people or other officers are, are uh, seriously injured and killed. And uh, and I think that's something that um, it's it's a in the worst case scenario, your officer stepped up and and performed absolutely as they should have, and uh, and that's a that's a real testament to your leadership, chief. Yeah, that goes down back to the training. You know, that escal watch them escalate and de-escalate the f the level of force, uh, and to have you know patrolmen making those calls and and coaching the the young the young troops that were out on the field on what to do and how to do it, and, and then those guys stepping up and just responding, and everybody responded, dispatched. They, they were calm on the radio the entire time and, and just did an amazing job of getting the resources that they needed there and then the decisions that were made and, you know, to watch them continue to go towards the danger, right? And to get biblical on you, right? And, you know, in, in Isaiah where he says, who shall I send? And here I am, send me. And that, that's a true testament to, to that. And I, I, you know, firmly believe that, you know, law enforcement's a calling and, these guys were put in that position at that moment in time. And the, all, all five trainees that were there are still working for us to this day and still getting after it. That's outstanding. Yeah. yeah, I think when something like that happens, when bullets start flying is, is the real test. It's, it's easy to back out of the room, you know, or back yeah. out of that situation. Hey, let's call in SWAT. Let's, let's let somebody else handle it. Uh, and those things often deteriorate into even worse situations. And, uh, and your guys didn't do that. They, took, they, they, they did what they needed to do to neutralize that threat. Uh, so that they could live and, and, and others could as well. Well, and since then, right, so we, we learned from that. What, what better medical equipment do we need out in the field? Because they all had medical equipment. And one of our guys, get, when, when Matt gets hit, 
he, his rookie's like, what do you need? He's like, I need this. And he pulls out a, a compression dressing out of his BDU pocket. And so then he starts working on himself. I mean, the, and the dude's just totally calm. Like, he's got, like, no up or down in his voice. He's just totally, hey, I need this, bro, right? And <laughs> just and so we went out, and we got everybody uh, an IFAT kit. So everybody, every, every officer has that kit. And it's in, it's on either on their person or it's in the car on the headrest, and they can rip it off and clip it on their, on their their duty belt. And so everybody's got multiple tourniquets. We had multiple tourniquets before then, but now it's like even a bigger drive. Everybody's got those. So to make sure that they've got the right equipment and to listen to them, what equipment do you need? And then provide that equipment what they need. Is and I'm not out in the field anymore, right? I, I, Things have changed. They know what equipment they need, and they're the ones that make the recommendations of, hey, we need this. So that's what we, we listen to that, and we get them what they need. That's outstanding. What are some other examples of, uh, you know, as you've – so first of all, let's let's talk about – because one of the other the, the things uh, that I want to get into is you, you've had a number of large metropolitan, you know, police departments reach out to you and ask, hey, how are you taking these principles and applying them? How are you teaching your, your team? Um, and can you talk a little bit about, about how that's going? Like what, what you're doing to train uh, and build these these leadership principles that we teach at Echelon Front into the culture of your team? Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of talk about how I failed, right, how I made mistakes um, and learned from those. Uh, you know, at the beginning – I was the driving force with this, right? And I was like, sometimes I get a little default aggressive on things, you know, um, and and sometimes I got to back away from things. And we were uh, implementing this and we started to write this into our uh, our promotions. So if you want to get promoted at, at, at our department, you got to read the books, all three of them, and know what those principles are and how they're applied. Um, and so we, I listened for feedback from the, the troops that said, look, these other books that we're, we're studying right now and, uh, aren't, aren't exactly what we, wa- we want. So we broke it down for the books and we made them available for everybody. And it's actually built into our assessment centers. And then we started doing monthly trainings. Um, so we, we bought the program. We bought the uh, EF online at the time and, and, and it was, a the original 12 lessons that were out there. And so the sergeants were, were doing that once a month and we added it into our, what's called our career path. So they get points for, uh, for their promotion, uh, when they, when they go through the, the, the lesson plans. And, and, and I, I found out I was, I was too much of the driving force behind this. And Cody kind of helped me see the light on that. I was having a conversation with Cody and I'm like, okay, we're going to implement this. We're going to roll it out full tilt and, and I'm like, well, how do you want to do? He's asking me, how do you want to do this? And and I call him back the next day, and I'm like, dude, I'm a dumbass, man. The answer's right in front of me, and I didn't. I'm the driving force behind this. I got to turn this over to the sergeants. And so we had a big meeting. It was all it was sergeants and above. We're in the room, sergeants, lieutenants, and uh, Cody was on. Cody was had zoomed in, and I went in that meeting and I took ownership of it. I said, guys, this is 100 percent my fault. I've been the driving force behind this and I need to take a step back and the sergeants need to be the, the driving force behind this. And you guys need to figure out how to implement this. I gave them a commander's intent and an end state saying, I, you know, I want, I'd like this to be trained once a month and you guys lead the discussions on it. And I, I got with a couple sergeants ahead of time that I asked who wanted to be in charge of it. And 
Sergeants Lacey and Barchi uh, stepped up and said, we want to, we want to run this, right? We want, we want to, we want, we got some ideas for this and how it needs to go. And so I, right, had to check me, go at the door, take a step back and let them run with it and let them develop the program and let it become of what it's want. Because I'm like, if I don't do this, I'm a hypocrite, right? Because I'm a firm believer that let them the 80%, right? They come with an 80% solution and take that other 20% and, you know, 80% solutions to go. Yep. And so, so then that happened and they've ran with it. And then, so this year, uh, Sergeant Bartsch got a hold of me and said, like, okay, well, this year's done. What do you want to do with it? And I'm like, I don't know, Zach, what do you want to do? How do you want to run it this next go around? And he's like, well, I think we need to give them an option. And we, so we talked about going to the, the 12 of, uh, lessons from dichotomy or doing something else. And I said, okay, well, if we do something else, we need some lesson plans. we got to have, you know, once, something once a month. So I'll let you guys figure that out. So we went to a staff meeting and it was just like, yeah, let's just do dichotomy. And that was their idea to do dichotomy. So that's what we're doing this year. We're doing once a month dichotomy, um, you know, and then, uh, you find out that when you start giving people ownership on things, like it, it spreads like wildfire because now everyone knows they're kind of coming to my office or hit me up in the hallway like, hey, chief, we want to, um, what do you think I'm going to say? Come up with a plan, figure out some countermeasures in case, you know, things, obstacles come up our way. Um, and I'm letting people run with things. And that's the whole idea behind that is, is you give them the ownership. And if it's 80% of what I want, uh, they're coming up with the plans. They're figuring out how to get things done, and they're uh, they're the ones that are navigating through it. I, you know, if they can make decisions, I want them to make decisions. If somebody comes up for an idea on something to go to council, they're the ones that are going to the council meetings and they're presenting it to council. I'm just there to support them. And you know that eighty percent. That's what uh, that's what bugaboos a lot of a lot of leaders. It's like, oh, this is my idea. I'm the chief. I'm the sheriff. I'm the captain. It's like. You are, you, you're right, but it's, it's all on you, but it's not about you, right? I mean, it goes back to that. It's, it's strategic versus tactical, yeah. right? And, and, and I think for a lot of, it's, it's ego that drives a lot of it. Yes. If I think, well, I'm, I've got more experience than these people. Yeah. I've got, you know, I, I've got better knowledge or strategic vision, yeah. um, and I can see what we need to do, and yet that's where so many leaders, leaders struggle. It's where you're trying to push something on the team instead of letting the team run with that 80% solution. And when, when, when you give people ownership, it's their plan. They, they're going to implement that plan. It might be slightly different than what you thought, but it's so much better when it's their plan. And, and I think yeah. what, what throws people off a lot of times is if, you know, if, uh, if you're the chief and you just let, okay, Leif, I, you know, I'm one of your guys. You're like, hey, Leif, you just run with it. But that's not really, that's not really how it works. Yeah. What, what you should do is like, okay, talk me, talk me through the plan and how you want to do it. Yeah. So then, then you can still kind of make sure that it's inside the guardrails, that it meets, you know, your intent, that it's, uh, it, it meets the resource constraints that we're under and, and, and time constraints. So you're not just letting someone go do whatever yeah. they want to do. You still can, can manage that. But the more that you can give ownership, I mean, that's the biggest, we get that all the time. How, how do you create buy-in? How do I get buy-in to my plan? And the best way to create buy-in is to is to give ownership, and and uh, I think giving that that person ownership, you got people that 
they want to run that training. They're looking forward to that training. They're excited about that training because it's their training, and and they can. Yeah. They're they're eager to step up and run with it, and it's uh, and you just let them run, and it's let then you can think up and out, and I think that's the it's always the best way to go strategically. It's going to get people. Uh, on board with that plan so much better than you dictating it to them where they're just pushing back. Like, what did Chief come up with us for today? I'm yeah. just showing up here. Yep. Well, and I think, uh, you know, one of the areas I failed in at the beginning was explaining the why. And I think that's important to that ownership of explaining the why. What's the end state, right? What's the commander's intent? And I think that, uh, you know, at the beginning, when I first introduced all this, uh, I didn't, if I could, you know, take my time machine and go back in time and be like, okay, well, but maybe not, you know, cause I learned from it and I, I like to learn from where I made mistakes and errors and, you know, uh, and, and then get better from them. So I, I think it's super important, you know, if anybody's going to try to implement this, explain the why to your people and give them some context. Um, and some of the things where this is actually graduated to is I'm, I'm teaching a four hour block of this at the very beginning of the academy. Uh, we send all our people to Idaho State University, and I, I, I give them the laws of combat right at the beginning and, and how to implement them. And uh, when, when I onboard people, I spend about two hours with them right at the, in the, before they go through the process of the mini academy um, at our department of explaining mission, vision, values, expectations, and leadership principles. And go on over that so everybody knows what the commander's intent is from the newest people on board. And that that's includes dispatchers, records, clerks, stenographers, patrol officers, all the whole gambit. And, and that way it helps break down silos and it, it gets everybody on board. Everybody knows what the mission is. And then if they know what the mission is, they know what their guidelines are. And that's huge for decentralized command because decentralized command is not defunct command because then it's like, hey, just here's your keys. Don't crash the car. It's like, oh, okay, well, that can mean a lot of things, right? And so if you say, well, here's your guidelines to operate. And then when, if they've got, if you build that culture too, of asking earnest questions of like, well, Hey boss, I'm not exactly sure what you meant by this. What do you mean by this? Cause like I'm from the eighties and I remember teaching a class and I, I said to the, the students, I said, some people will look at you and say, what you talking about Willis? And I had a student raise his hand and he says, who's Willis? <laughs> so, so I'm he like, didn't get the reference. He didn't get the reference. So I had to explain the reference, and I actually gave him some homework to watch a couple of episodes of Different Strokes. So they understood the reference the next time they came to my class. So, um, but that goes back to that principle of simple, right? We think we're communicating at like a level ten, but really we're communicating at a level three or below. And and so to explain that end state to people is very critical. That was a great conversation we had, you know, we were talking about, uh, and, and I think that was in the context of this training program. Yes. Right. That, yep. that, uh, when you're trying to explain the why and, and it's not, it, it's, I think this is, this is a common thing for most, uh, a trap that a lot of leaders fall into is that you just assume that people understand the why it seems obvious. And, uh, the the benefits of this new strategy that we're going down or the benefits of this training program or hey why we're we should be making this adjustments or pivoting here it seems obvious to uh you in a leadership position particularly if you're from a detached position you've been thinking about that it's never obvious to people and and so that was a i I enjoyed that discussion that we had and it's one that we've had a lot of times you know on, on different things of uh with so many different leaders and and you asked me so you're telling me you know i understand it I think I think they understand it ten out of ten. They actually understand it seven out of ten, 
And I was saying, no, they actually understand it three out of 10, probably best case. Maybe it's actually one out of 10. Yeah. So I think if you operate as a leader from that perspective, that, hey, this is my job to impart the why to them and explain it to them. And it's a constant process. It's not a single brief. It's not a single conversation. It's just a constant process all the time. What you just said, though, about just, hey, here's the keys to the car. Don't crash it. That is what scares a lot of people on the decentralized command side. And I think, you know, one thing that we talk about is that with decentralized command, you still have to lead. Yes. You still have to lead. I can't just say, hey, if I'm the boss and, you know, you're one of my guys, like, hey, Roger, yeah, do whatever you want to do. Uh, and, and ask me if you need something. That's, I'm not leading. I, I can't support you. I can't provide any guidance to you. I can't vector resources to you. If I don't actually, if I get so detached, I don't even understand what your challenges are. Uh, so I can't, I can't be that detached. That's why it's yeah. a dichotomy of, 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 uh, you, we want to be detached so that we can look up and out, but we can't be so detached, so, uh, distance from what's actually going on, on the front lines that we can't support. So, um, that is not what decentralized command looks like. And it's finding that balance, uh, where you're letting people step up to lead, but you're still leading in that you're understanding what their challenges are and providing guidance to them and veteran them resources when they need it. So it's kind of like, um, you know, in the law enforcement world, when you look at when you're training a new person, whether that be in dispatch or patrol or, or wherever in your department, they go through some type of FTO program. When you get these new people in there, you got to start off and really you're micromanaging them at the beginning. And as they go through their different phases, you give them a little more room to maneuver. And by the time they're in final phase, they're supposed to be doing everything on their own. That FTO is just there to shadow them. But then as that person gets out of FTO, right, they're still new. They're still learning. Their sergeant gives them a look, goes back to what JP said, right? How much rope do you give people, right? Enough to, you know, tie a knot, but not enough to hang themselves, right? So you give them a little more room to maneuver, and then you assess that, and then you give them even more room as they become a senior officer, a senior patrolman, or a senior dispatcher. And then you give them that room to maneuver, uh, but there, there's a time and place for, it's a di- like you said, a dichotomy. And, and I think the FTO program in law enforcement is the, the perfect example of that. Because, yeah, you start off micromanaging people. It's kind of like when you get a new shooter on the range, right? It's like, okay, here's how you hold the gun. Here's how you draw the gun. Here's where you put your finger at. But then you get the senior officers over there. You're, you're just giving the command to shoot and everything is just automatic. So I think there's a lot to be said about... Uh, that with decentralized command, it's like you have to, it's like the, the crawl, walk, run philosophy. You just can't like expect people to be running uh, from the beginning. got to teach them how to do that. And that's through training and then providing them with like training equipment and leadership. And then, and then when, if, if somebody gets outside the guidelines, then, okay, how do I coach them to get them back into the guidelines? And a lot of times they get outside the guidelines. It's, it's my fault because I failed to communicate my commander's intent. So we're, and we're talking a lot about leading down the chain and how you lead the department, which, you, which, is, uh, which are great things to talk about, definitely. But I think one thing that is, great, is interesting to me is how you influence other departments, you know, and, uh, and how you share best practices with, with peers and, and lessons learned um, as well. And, and, you know, folks that you're connected with through the FBI National Academy and just, just across, across the United States. Uh, and then also up the chain of command as well, yeah. too. That's something I've been very impressed with. Uh, about your efforts to build relationships with uh, your city council and and your mayor, you know, and, and, and the people that 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 you depend on up the chain as well, um, and I think those 
those things are where uh, I, I see um, I see the, you know the, the the struggle that happens a lot of times is this this idea of like how I actually have to lead up the chain even when you have someone and that was that was me back in the day where I I felt like hey I was I, I might be um, confident in my ability to lead my platoon but I, I it wasn't really until I started working with Jocko that I I, I realized hey I I'm I'm failing as a leader if I don't build good relationships up the chain of command so that we can actually get the resource that we need and get our operations approved and we can actually do what we need to do to be successful as well. And I think a lot of folks in law enforcement uh, seem to struggle with that, where they're super frustrated with the chain of command that might be several levels above them. Um, but uh, there, there's the you have done a great job of focusing to build those those relationships and, and doing that effectively. Um, and I see others that, that struggle in that, that area as well. Yeah, and it's 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 nice when you build those relationships, especially with like your community, and then they they provide the feedback to my boss, like the mayor, about positive things they like seeing in the community, and then we have we have a good relationship. I got a good boss, um, you know he uh, he lets me use decentralized command because I go to him and I explain the commander's intent. Uh, this is the why behind this, and I, I like the fact that um, he gives me pushback. And he allows me to give him pushback. Um, it's a it's a it's a good relationship, and you know we've had things where we didn't agree, and I've told him that you know I don't agree with you, and here's the why behind that. But you know you don't make it like personal, or you don't make it you know you don't get vindictive. It's just like hey, this is this is the why behind this, and and but it all comes back to that building relationships with people. Um, uh, whether it be the council asking questions, I've brought council members into my office. Uh, walked them through i've invited them to go right alongs come to training citizens police academy we had um, one of our council members and his wife both go through our citizens police academy and we had some of our biggest critics come through our citizens police academy and they come out to be our biggest cheerleaders um you know working with uh with idaho state university and I, I work out with the student athletes i travel with the football team and build those relationships and then those former those former student athletes come to the police department and come to work for us so um, I think when you when you look at it like at a holistic view, if you're out there building relationships with your community, building relationships with the, the influencers uh, like the mayor and city council or the influencers for the police department. And if I do something that um, could damage that relationship, it could impact my budget, right, which impacts down the chain of command. It impacts the ability to, to procure resources training manpower uh but there's certain you know certain times where i had to give them quite a bit of pushback where uh they wanted me to do something that wasn't uh you know the right thing to do or the ethical thing to do and i had to give them some pushback and you know there's certain sometimes but it's all in how you do that you could do that professionally or you can do that un unprofessionally and i always i've been a firm believer that you know if, if you're going to do something and give someone some pushback you know there's there's certain ways to do that and um and uh Am, am I building leadership capital with them or am I, am I spending it? And if I'm going to spend it, is it calculated in how I spend it? So, but that goes all back to the relationships of, hey, look, uh, you know, if they, if they provide a suggestion, right? If you want to be listened to, you got to listen to others. If you want respect, you have to give respect. Um, if you want to influence people, you need to let them influence you. And, and I've used that a lot with my relationship with council and the mayors. Like, hey, can you do this? It's like, yeah, we're on it, boss. We got this. And, um, and it's all about building leadership capital people. And it's not, you know, some people might take it as like, oh, yeah, well, you're just kissing butt to the boss. It's like, no, I'm, 
I'm building leadership. Capital. That's what winning looks like. That's what, exactly. That's what winning looks like, and it, and it really, I I took pride as a as a junior officer in the SEAL teams. I took pride as, uh, you know, a lieutenant of, of of an officer that like hated the senior officers more than the enlisted guys ever could, and and uh, you know it was just. Uh, I was just one of those guys of like they don't know what's going on down here. They just get it, get out of our way, and it really it really took Jocko as a uh, as, as my boss and a mentor to me to to help me realize like hey if if you don't have a good relationship with the boss like how, how yeah. does that help you? How does that help your team? How does it help you? It, it it doesn't. It doesn't help you at all. And I think that's where I, I see a lot of law enforcement officers struggle. Um, it, whether they're, you know, uh, the patrol officers, whether they're, uh, you know, sergeants and, uh, and, and lieutenants or, or captains or, or, or above, it, it, everywhere in the chain of command sometimes, I think there's, a, there's an idea of, like, they need to just get off our back and let us do our jobs. I understand those frustrations are real. Yep. Uh, but the, the reality is, what are you doing to build better relationships? And so when we get people that tell us things like, um, hey, my, my chief doesn't trust me to run training, um, and they're telling us that we can't run training on shift or wh whatever it may be. The question you, you got to be asking yourself there is, why do I have no ability to influence my boss? Why doesn't the boss trust me to actually be able to run training? Why? What, what am I doing to build a better relationship? Why do I have no leadership capital? Clearly, there's been no effort to build leadership capital. And I think when you're prioritizing building relationships and prioritizing building leadership capital, then when it comes back to push back on the things that absolutely matter, you're and and you you've proven that you've been successful in those efforts when it absolutely matters because you don't push back on the things that don't matter yeah. and you're focused on building those relationships. Yeah, and I, you know, young me, like everything was like a like a cancel the op Leif Babin moment, right? It was, you know, it was like uh, we we did that. Like me and uh, a guy by the name of Glenn Boudry, we used to train a lot and we would do our own little training session and the the you know as patrol officers and the lieutenant would come up. Well, what are you guys doing? Well, we're training. Well, why are you doing that? Because we can, right? And we were kind of, we were, our, I was my own worst enemy as a young officer, right? I just, ego <laughs> killed me. And and so we, instead of explaining the why and building a relationship with that lieutenant, right, we pushed back and, like, I, I wanted to be a defensive tactics instructor for a long time. I mean, I got a martial arts background. I, you know, trained back in the day and all the way to, to today and, and, we, uh, I kept getting turned down and I'm like, and I'm watching these people get defensive tactics instructors. And it's like, well, that guy can't beat himself out of a wet paper sack. And it's like, you know, I keep getting passed over. It's like, well, why am I getting passed over? And I look back at it and my wife was right. It, it was me, right? It was a hundred percent because of the way I approached it with my, with my bosses. I did not build that relationship with them. And I realize that now, and so I looking at that. I as I as I move forward with things, and uh, I'm the president of the Chiefs of Police Association right now, and uh, dealing with stuff on the legislative level, right, with our uh, Idaho House and Senate folks, and building relationships with them, and getting bills passed, and trying to you know make law enforcement better for our state. Uh, because I, and now I have to check my ego at the door there because it's not about me. It's about what the, the group wants, right? And, and if I don't build good relationships with them, then I don't get the bill passed to make law enforcement better. So I've implemented those things where I've epically failed in the past and, and use them for success. But, I mean, it, you know, every, every time we hit a bump in the road, I look at it as an opportunity to learn. So there's, 
there, and those are always out there because they're always happening. <laughs> so young me, young me would have handled things a lot differently than I do right now. And, you know, my, my wife just sits back and like, I told you so, right? <laughs> <laughs> She's always right. I think that's, uh, that's something I've uh, come to terms with, certainly. Over Bro, I'm never years. right in my yeah. house, man. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are some other places that you've seen pushback? Um, you know, we talked about that's kind of common in the law enforcement world of, hey, what are, what are these Navy SEALs that learn some stuff in combat? How does that apply to me in law enforcement? Where have you seen some pushback on this stuff? Um, with Because uh, I know you've tried to share these principles with, with other, uh, other police departments yeah. out there. Um, what are some of the challenges you come up against? You know, uh, some of the challenges would be like, well – um, they, you know, they don't recognize this or, or like maybe people feel like it's a little too default aggressive to use the laws of combat, you know, and, and getting on into this early, you know, I was working with, with, with our local post, our peace officer standards and training to get this, got a little bit of pushback, but, uh, that was my fault because I didn't approach it the right way with them. And then once I, I figured out and pulled the thread on the Y a little bit and, uh, use the indirect approach rather than the direct approach with them. Um, you know, now it's, uh, I've actually, people from post have reached out to me to go to some other agencies and explain the, the leadership principles to them. So I think it's a matter of, of putting it in context. And, um, like when, uh, NYPD actually reached out and said, Hey, how have you been successful in implementing this stuff? And I'm thinking, man, you guys are like, 33,000 sworn. I got a hundred people like, why are you reaching out to me? He's like, well, they, they were on the Academy and I met one of them at muster and, you know, they just said, we, we like what you're doing and we pay attention to your, you know, some of the stuff you post on LinkedIn, which is where I only exist on LinkedIn. I don't have any other social media. And, uh, but we, we really like what you have to say. And that, so uh, I just talked them through some things and, it's putting it into context to your bosses. And I think that that's, if you're leading up the chain of command, it's really huge to put that in context and not go, look, we're not at battle with anybody, but it, this is how it works. And this is the why behind it. I think that that like when people like, especially like a lot with a lot of things that have been going on in the country, when you look at like, you know, um, the incident in with George Floyd and, uh, you know, the, the riots that happened across the country. And then they're saying, you know, well, you're uh, you're saying laws of combat, and you know you got the the media and social media freaking out about that. And it's just like, look, I'm not talking about being in combat with anybody. They're leadership principles. These are fundamentals. They're a blueprint. They're SOPs for being a leader. And when you look at that and you start talking about, um, like I explained, how hey, this is cover move is simple. This. And, and, and prioritizing next is this, and decentralized command is this, and you put it in that context, and then you realize that, okay, these are the things that we can implement in the field, and this is the why behind it, and explaining that to the chain of command. And then I think not failing uh, when you go to your boss and your boss says no. Right? Your boss says no, and then you go like, well, okay, well, I'm done then. Because my boss said, throw up your hands and just give up. Yeah, this is crap. It didn't work. Well, it might not work the first time. You might have to reapproach it from a different angle because you have these different personalities and different generations that you're dealing with. So you might have to go, okay, well, that didn't work. Cool. Don't approach it that way this time with my boss. I got to approach it this way. Or you learn something from, okay, well, I went too direct at them. 
on trying to implement these leadership principles. You know, like, and, but then maybe you take the indirect approach. Hey, boss, what are your thoughts on me taking, you know, a couple of these guys and doing this leadership principle thing, you know, from echelon front and trying it this way? And the thing is, is if, if it makes, for me, if it makes post happy, if I reword it, I'll reword it. I don't care. But to me, it's, it's cover move, simple, prioritize, execute, decentralized command, default aggressive, humility, you know, de- uh, discipline equals freedom. You know, you're talking about those mindsets of victory and, but how they translate. And they're going to translate differently for, uh, we have, so we have ordinance enforcement officers that are, they're, they're sworn, but they're not sworn police officers. They go out and they handle like, you know, uh, weeds and found property and they carry tasers and they carry, they don't carry guns. So their, their mission's a little bit, you know, adjusted and we have to talk differently in, in implementing those laws of combat to them, but they understand the principles. So I, I think it's just a matter of how you approach it and then not failing the first time. It, it's not failure. It's just I got to reapproach it a different way. And it, it's consistency too, right? That's the, that's the attitude of good, right? Okay. Yeah. Now we have an opportunity to, to make an adjustment. We have an opportunity to educate up the chain. We have an opportunity to try a flanking maneuver and use that more indirect approach. And, you know, if, if, you're, if, if I'm trying to convince you and you're my boss on something and, and I'm, I'm immediately meeting stiff resistance, that should be the indicator to me that I've used a way too direct approach. And I've got to use a much more indirect approach on that. And, and we've seen a number of people. There, there was a company we were working with uh, a few months ago they they took the laws of combat and they they called them the principles of teamwork or something like that uh, and so we've seen that a number of times like, I actually don't care if you don't want to call these things the laws of combat you know the idea of, of default aggressive is problems aren't going to solve themselves yeah. you could apply that in an active shooter situation where hey we've got uh, we've got to stop the killing stop the dying I'm the only I'm the person in position to do that right now I've got to make that happen but that. Most of the time, what we're trying to teach people is to de-escalate a situation and to stay yes. detached and to stay unemotional about things uh, so that they can properly prioritize and execute. Um, and, and, you know, you know from our, our field training exercise program, it's all about being the, the what we call the two-man in the SEAL teams, yep. which, you know, in, in the train, instead of being the one-man where you're focused on the threat, uh, and uh, you're the two-man where your gun is high port and you're looking around and, and, and you're, you're assessing the situation and vectoring resources or telling people to hold up and, and stop. So uh, it's kind of the opposite of what a lot of people think. You know, I think they look at somebody like Jocko and – he kind of looks like an axe murderer. So they assume that he's going to have a certain, uh, uh, that he's going to be telling them or he's going to lead in a certain way. People are often shocked to hear you. You look at a picture of that guy, and I've worked with Jocko for 18 years. And so when I ask people, like, how often do you think, how many times do you think Jocko's yelled at me? And when I say zero times, they're kind of shocked by that. It's because they think, well, you're, aren't you telling people to yell and scream at each other? They know that's not, that's not, that's not at all what we're telling. We're telling them to do the opposite of that. So, um, I think it's, you know, you've co- approached this from an open mind from the get-go. Uh, and I think it's uh, that, but that indirect approach, it's, it's the long game. You know, when, yeah. I, when I'm very impressed about your leadership, Chief, is that you're always playing the long game. It's, it's a long game. This is a campaign. It's not a single engagement. And if I know this is the right thing, it's going to help us be better. And it's going to help us, our officers are going to be, our officers are going to be more prepared to, uh, to take on the challenges. We're going to have stronger communities as a result then I'm not just going to give up because I approach that one time and say, Hey, we should do this. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to continue to try to, uh, I, I know it's the right, if you keep, if you're doing the right things for the right reasons, 
I, you know, I'm, I'm confident you're eventually you're going to be successful in that effort. It usually takes a lot longer, you know, th than you think. Uh, but that's that indirect approach over time, you know, and, and you've proven that that is successful. So, like, uh, you know, you brought up active shooter. So that's a, a big topic in law enforcement, you know, obviously something that we're always dealing with. And so when I teach building search at the academy um, and we're, we're doing the, the scenarios with simunitions, it's like, what's your driving force? And that you look back at it and go, okay, well, if my driving force is stop the violence, stop the killing, right, I got to go. But if it's not, right, what am I here for? Oh, I gotta, I, I'm here to, to make sure this building's safe and secure for the whoever owns it. So now I gotta clear every room, every nook and cranny, right? I gotta take up, I got, I got time on my side, right? Because my driving force. But then all of a sudden you hear someone yell for help and gunshots go off. Now I gotta bypass all that stuff and go towards those shots because it, my mission has changed. It's shifted from searching the building to, Right, stop the violence, stop the killing. It's become either a hostage situation or an active shooter. So, when you when you put that in perspective for us, it's like, okay, what's our mission, right? And it's and what tactics am I going to use, right? I'm going to go objectives dictate your tactics, right? If you want to get, you know, the the echelon front principles implemented in your department, right? What's your objective, and how what tactics are you going to use to to get that to where you want to be. And then as you come up with pushback, those are, that's when your countermeasures are going to come in. Like, okay, if they do this, then I'm going to do this. If they come in from this way, I'm going to, I'm going to flank and go this other way, or I'm going to send two guys one way. And right. So it's all about, you know, coming up with those in your head. And, and, and for me, it's like, if I want something, my, my troopers know it's, it's going to get done because if I get told no, I'm like, cool. Right. Cause I'm going to be like a gnat at a barbecue. Right. And I'm going to get, I'm going to get after it and find, I'll find a way to get it done. Right. Um, and it was like finding a way, Hey, how do I get Jocko and Leif up here? Right. Cool. I found a way. Right. Um, so, uh, it's a matter of how do you build that relationship? And then how do I, if I get told no, or I get an obstacle in my way, how do I overcome that? Right. And, you know, objectives dictate uh, your tactics, circumstances dictate those countermeasures, and, and then you approach it and come up with a plan. And, and then when everybody gets on board, right, and then it's going to kind of be hard, it becomes like a, it becomes not just one person, but it becomes a whole department or a whole division. If you have your, if you start off like at NYPD, it could start off very small with, you know, with the group that contacted me, but then get the, get other buy-in from your up and down the chain of command and then if you have a whole unit doing it and then it grows i mean napa pd is on board with things too um over over on the other side of the state doing echelon front stuff and and it, it's working it working for them as well and you know i know uh, pj uh langmate out in colorado he's getting after it with his department too i mean him and i we, we talked right before i came on and you know um about things and, and but to, to see those agencies flourish because they're implementing the leadership principles, the laws of combat and mindsets of victory. I mean, it just, nothing can stand in your way when you implement that blueprint. It is, we've been saying for years, uh, well before 2020, Jocko and I've been saying for years that, that 
particularly law, law enforcement officers and, and first responders in general have the hardest job in the world. And, and I think that's only gotten harder. Um, it's, it's never, it's never been harder, uh, to be in law enforcement. It's, it's, it's also never been more important too. And, and I think, uh, you know, taking that mission and, um, and, and, and training your officers to, you know, to, to, to be ready to respond to the most difficult situations that they, uh, that they could possibly be in under the kind of scrutiny that they're in, you know, in today's world. Um, and that requires massive trust and effort. It only happens, I think, with, uh, with the kind of training that you're talking about, where you're investing in getting your people ready to handle some really tough situations. And, and, uh, and I, I think, you know, as we brought, we, we brought back with us, um, you know, those, those, le- these, these lessons, uh, from Ramadi and I- I'm thankful for the opportunity to have been humbled just every single day with these violent and difficult combat operations where we got outmaneuvered or the enemy did something that we hadn't expected, or I hadn't put in a proper contingency plan or made sure that my team understood, you know, the, the why here or the parameters where they can make decisions and, or I didn't properly deconflict with, you know, the other friendly units, just the knowledge of it's not just us out there. There's, I have to, I have to work alongside the army and Marines and understand their standard operating procedures and their capabilities and limitations, all those things. So that's what we tried to bring back with us, you know, of just how hard this stuff was going to be. And, and I think, you know, for a lot of folks, if, if they're not, they think they're ready. They think they're ready for a tough situation, uh, just like I did. Before I went into the Battle of Ramadi, if you'd asked young Lieutenant Leif Babin, hey, uh, are you ready for some tough urban combat? You know, do you think you'll get in a, I would have said, absolutely, bring it on. Uh, if, in fact, Jocko had told me and Seth Stone, uh, the Delta Platoon Commander and Task Unit Bruiser, you guys are going to get in so much combat, you're going to get tired. That was a statement he made, and we laughed at that. I was like, there's no way that's going to happen. Well, we, we, were, we were pretty tired by the end of that deployment. I mean, just, just day in and day out. Uh, and certainly we believed in what we we're doing and the impact that we were having. Um, but if you'd asked me too, like, hey, w- w- would you get in a, would you guys get in a tough, uh, do you think you'll get in a blue-on-blue friendly fire mm-hmm. situation? I would have just laughed at you and said, there's, there's no way that would happen to us. That happens to losers who don't know how to plan and execute. And, and if you've read Extreme Ownership, chapter one yep. is this giant friendly fire blue on blue situation that happened. So those are the kind of lessons that we brought back with us. And I think learning these lessons um, that you're learning, not only from the instance that your officers have experienced, but I think you guys do a great job of evaluating what's going on across the country, what's going on with these different case studies that we can learn. You know, there's, it, it's really easy to fall on the idea of like, well, look what happened to those losers over there. Sure. They didn't train. Instead of, instead of taking a look at yourself and saying, hey, what can we do to learn those lessons and make sure that doesn't happen to us or that we don't have that terrible situation or that we can perform better? Um, and I think that's something that, you know, good leadership requires. That's why humility is the most important quality in the leader because you're constantly having that brutally honest self-assessment of you, of your team, uh, all the time, you know, of your, of your training program, what can we do to make this stuff better to pre- prepare our guys? You know, and, and the other thing I guess I would say to people that doubt, like the question or questioning, like, oh, this is a little too aggressive because it's Navy SEALs that are coming in. And I'm, I, the thing that I, I talk to those other agencies, I'm like, what is the number one thing they teach? Like, what is the number one quality of a leader? Humility. What is the number one thing you can do as a leader? Build relationships. What's the number one skill set you can have as a leader? Communicate. Those don't sound too aggressive to me. And for us, it's like, 
You know, the only reason we're allowed to police our community, do you know why that is? Well, how we can police our community? It's because our community allows us to. That's like a Sir Robert Peel 1829 principle of policing from way back in the day, right? When they were having the same struggles back then that we're having right now. And it's because of those relationships that we build with our community. It's going to Idaho State University. It's going and throwing weights with the, the student athletes there, right? It's having them come to your station and throwing weights with you. It's taking them to the range and shooting. It's doing a Citizens Police Academy, explaining the why. And uh, with our local NAACP, we have a great relationship with them. With our old town uh, businesses, uh, just the different rotaries and the school district 25 and the, just the different relationships we have with them and building those relationships and that leadership capital with them so that when you need to make a withdrawal, um, you know, make it as neutral as possible. But if you have to make a withdrawal, that that withdrawal is worth it. And But you have money in the bank to make a withdrawal, right? That's a big thing, right? If you don't have no money in the bank, then you're going into debt. So, uh, and so anybody that like will, the advice I've given them is like, Throw that back at, up the chain of command. If your mayor or council or your chief or your sheriff or your captain is giving you pushback on that, go, look, look, what they're teaching is to build relationships with people and tie it into Sir Robert Peel's principles of policing because that's 100% what that's about, right? He talks about using force back in there. You shouldn't use more force than is reasonable and necessary. And that's uh, right out of Graham versus Connor out of 1989, which is our standards for using force. But that's a Sir Robert Peel principle of policing from way back in the day. And so when you look at it, what Echelon Front is, like Jocko said, uh, you know, I've heard him say it a, a bunch of times, I didn't invent this stuff, right? It's all, when he was reading uh, uh, General Clark's uh, uh, guidelines for the leader and commander, at, I found in a library and, it, and maybe made a copy of that electronically and read that, it's like, is like maybe we should be paying this guy money for you know for the for this book because it's stuff that's right out of extreme ownership dichotomy and leadership strategy and tactics and it's 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 just the way that it's it's explained but then if they could go back and explain it hey this is the context that this is in hey cover and move is contact and cover or a building search technique right it's not like we're you know we're gonna lay down suppressive fire on you know some grandma who's we're going to take a, a call from no you're you're going to go there and you're going to what's your mission what's a relationship like right what's how are we going to work this as a team right? it, 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 so i think it's explaining that and getting it into context building that relationship is critical uh, up and down the chain of command so relationships are paramount and i can you know attest to that i've had firsthand experience from that i've learned from my failures you know we just recently had a situation um where Ownership is contagious, and we had a, re a recent situation in, um, in, in our department where uh, I wasn't paying close enough attention. This was just within this last month. I wasn't playing, paying close enough attention to something, and an incident happened where uh, somebody felt that they were you know, wrongfully disciplined, and I looked at it and went, okay. Um, so I got the, 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 the players in the room together, and we had a conversation and um, talked about it, and I said, you know, this is 100% my fault. I, I wasn't paying close enough attention. I didn't provide you with enough training and enough commander's intent. Didn't explain the why. And I'm sorry, this will not happen again. And here's what we're going to do to fix this. We're gonna, this is the training you're going to get. And this is the feedback we're going to provide. And 
like immediately the next senior guy in the room's like no boss this is my fault because i didn't communicate good enough and then the next person in the chain of commands in the room is no boss that's my fault because i didn't explain this good enough that it needed to be like an informal type of coaching situation and then and then the person that provided that was like no that's my fault because i checked the wrong box and i and i framed it this way so i'm i'm leaning back on and i'm thinking i I know i'm coming on to to this i'm thinking in my brain like hashtag this stuff works man because the they they, i didn't i didn't know that was going to happen it just I took, I knew what I needed to do and I, and you have to be genuine when you do it too. You just can't say, well, it's my fault. You have to like genuinely mean it's your fault and it, they have to see it. And cops and firemen are the worst because we're, we're like reading your body language, right? We're seeing if the words match up with the, the you know, is he rolling his eyes or is she rolling her eyes? Is there any size? Is there any inflection in the voice so you have especially like my people know me and they know how to read me and so if i'm not genuine with them and if you're not genuine with them when you're when you're implementing this it's going to come off as fake and like cops and firemen like we're we're our own worst critic i mean we're harsh on each other i'm sure you were in the team seal teams for sure yeah i mean it's like you know when someone's you know, BSing you, right? Intent has a smell. Oh and, boy! And it, pe- people can people can absolutely uh, see that. And you you know, <laughs> Jock often says like, "You're not you're not Robert De Niro, right? You, you there's no way you're going to go in there and be and be an actor if you don't truly believe that it is your fault." But the reality is, you're responsible for everything that your people yep. do. So if they didn't do something they needed to do, it is your fault. And so it's it's not it's not made up. It, it's when when you accept and understand that. That's where extreme ownership actually becomes preemptive because yeah. if you if you realize like, hey, I've got some folks out here that maybe aren't quite as experienced, I don't have as much confidence in them, I'm gonna be a little looking over their shoulder a little more. I'm gonna make sure that they're that they understand, you know, what, what where they're what our commander's intent is, yeah. what the guidelines are, what the parameters are, where they can make decisions, uh, and where they need to ask permission for things. So if you're doing that, you prevent problems from happening in the first place. And that's why, you know, like when these other agencies call me, I, I like to carve out some time for them to, to talk about them. I've talked to, you know, Nashville and New York, L.A. area agencies, um, some fire departments down there, too, on some people that had questions. And don't get frustrated, right? It's, it's the long game, right? And it's, uh, I know that this stuff works. I know that it, when you do it and you do it with genuine intent, and like you said, intent has a smell, and and as a first responder, we're good at sniffing that out. We, we know when things are not, we know when someone's just giving us lip service. And, and so it's like, I always look back at it too. It's like, if I'm the boots on the ground, what would I want my chief or, or you know, what would I want my boss to do? And I remember what it was like to have a bad boss, right? I always think about the bad bosses in my head and go, okay, if I had a bad lieutenant or bad sergeant, bad captain, bad chief, like, how not to be. I don't want to be that guy. And I don't want any of the the future leaders of the department to be that guy. And what I'm trying to do and what we are doing is setting up our department so that when we don't have to go outside for a chief, like I want it to come from inside. I want, I want people to replace me. I want people to, uh, you know, be those future leaders of, of, of our department. And, you know, that's another thing too, like with, with, uh, first responders is 
we get some information, we get some training, and we, we take it and we keep those cards super close to our chest and we don't want to share, right? Because then someone might have a leg up on me. I want my, my people to know how I'm thinking and I want them to know, you know, what my strategies are because I want them to learn. I want them to replace me. And I think that that's a big fear that a lot of leaders go into and they're like, well, if I'm not this, then I'm not important or I'm not relevant. I kind of want to be a little irrelevant and let them shine because if, I, if I'm irrelevant, then let them make the decisions. I'm going to empower them because the thing is, is like, I don't care if I'm, you know, the face of the department or not. It's I want other people to, to step up and succeed and be and learn and grow. And I think that that's another, you know, sometimes struggle that we have in, as a first responder. And I, w- I would even dispute the term irrelevant, right? Because it's not that you're irrelevant. It's that it's maybe in the tactical situation, you could be irrelevant yes. because they can handle that problem. Yeah. But that allows you to start thinking strategically about where you want the department to be five or 10 years down the road. And and so now you can think up and out about the long-term strategic uh, a good of the team and the mission, which is what your job is in the yeah. first place, instead of trying to solve all the problems by looking down and in into your organization. So uh, I think that's, you know, from a tactical aspect, perspective if they don't need you and they're not hey and if they're not calling you up and saying hey boss what do you want me to do because they can actually handle that situation that enables you to focus on where you should be focused and i think a lot of leaders just don't realize that's that's what their job should be is that long-term piece of it yeah i think that's a better word not irrelevant so um yeah that uh you know on a couple so two super bowls ago we had a, a guy take uh his family hostage on super bowl sunday and i get a call from Captain Collins, he calls me up and says, hey, Chief, this is what we got. This is who we have deployed. This is what I'm working on. I'm going out to the scene. I'm like, what do you need? He's like, I'm good. I got it. So I, I drove my work car over my, my parents' house that because uh, I'm like, okay, if we shoot this guy or something, if this guy shoots his family, I'm going to have to go into work, and i got to have my gear with me, and i got to position myself so that I can go in, in in case. So I had my stuff with me just in case. Um, my parents' house happened to be in the same area on the main road. I drove by. I looked down the road, and there was an ambulance deployed. Our SWAT rig was deployed. We had, you know, I'm like, cool. They got it. I went to my parents' house. Um, you know, I, I cooked some food. Um, kept kept monitoring what was going on. I had my radio with me, so I was monitoring what was going on. Uh, but I'm like, Bill's got it. Um, they got it. They, they all I'm, what am I going to do there? I'm just going to get in the way. Right. And like old school me, right. Uh, yeah. Do I want to break a door? Do I want to go? Yeah. I want to have some fun. Right. But it's not my job anymore. My job now is if something bad were to happen, now I have to go in and do a press conference. I've got to go in and I've got to talk to the mayor, update the mayor on everything. Keep, I kept him apprised of everything that was going on, but that's not my, my job's not to go out there and get in the way. Or micromanage. They 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 know what they're doing, and that goes back to training, equipment, and leadership. And and so I think that's a great example there of decentralized command of knowing they knew what to do, they knew what their mission was, um, and I knew what my mission was. And so I think when when that's properly framed, then you know it's that's mission success right there. And at the end of the day, the, the guy gave up. He came out. They negotiated him out. Our crisis negotiators there. They negotiated him out. He came up and he gave up. Perfect, perfect ending, right? Nobody gets hurt. Um, everybody went home safe. We got we got him the health help that he needed, and 
you know, put him where he needed to be for the time being and worked on the, the, the long-term safety of that, of that neighborhood. So that was mission success right there. That's an incredible example. And, and what I was thinking about as you're saying that is if you had have shown up there, right, then, then people start deferring to you and start, start asking you. So, so that actually disrupts the situation. Um, And I think for so many of us, it's either you don't trust your people. So I got to be there to make sure that no one makes a mistake or it feeds the ego. I need to be there to actually make, make these calls. And, you know, we talk about this idea when we think of leaders, right? We have this traditional idea of leadership as the person that has all the answers, that barks orders at people and tells everyone what to do. And yet that's really not what good leadership looks like. What good leadership looks like is what we call the silent leader, which is somebody who he doesn't a leader who has trained and prepared their team so much that they don't even have to say anything because the team knows what to do. Yeah, you know, that's um... – a lot of times you go you go into like a, a I, I like to go into squad meetings or talk to people in the hallway or in the report room, in the weight room, out of training, get their feedback. But it's like if something happens, I'm like, okay, well, I, I'll get like the captain come in or the lieutenant and brief me on it. Like, okay, well, what are we doing? How are we handling this? And they'll brief me. And it's like, I think that if I show up, it's a lot of things like out there, it it could affect morale in a negative way or their trust. Like they know I trust them to do the right things and make the right decisions. And it's, it's hard because like the old street cop in me wants to go right, wants to go out there, but to realize that my mission has changed. And I think that's always important to remember in the back of my melon and that my focus has to be up and out, not down and in. I mean, and, and we talk about this every week, right, on the, on the academy. Um, or, I'll, or I'll break out the book. And, like, when, I've had, when I'm struggling with people, like, with mission alignment, right, and my wife will be like, well, how can you remember this stuff, but you can't remember something I told you 20 minutes ago? I, you go to, to page 238, right, of, of, of extreme ownership, right, and it talks about mission alignment. And it talks about, you know, that if you could – when you leave the room, you need to come out as a united front, right? And, and things like that, that mission alignment is critical. And, um, you know, I always get asked this question too. It's like, well, now that I'm a new leader, I make sure like all, when I make promotions, I give them, uh, I ask them, do you, do you have copies of the book and uh, the, of the three books? And they're like, yeah, I, I do or I don't. And, and I've, I've, my bookshelf is jam-packed with these three books. And, um, you know, I often turn to page 238 of the stream ownership um, or page 157, 158 on leadership strategy and tactics where it talks about what do I do when I'm a, a new leader, right? Well, I think you should do that if you're a new leader or an old leader. It uh, applies. It, it applies, Thank right? You. I mean, it applies to me as, a, as, as you know, 30 plus years in this job as going back to those pages of, because sometimes like, you know, it's like when you read something, where are you at at that moment in time in your life? And what does it mean to you then? But then what does it mean to you now that these other circumstances are, are you're dealing with them? And it's, it means total, something totally different when it's you talk about humility or it talks about building relationships or be balanced or be decisive or take ownership up and down the chain of command. Uh, those all things could, could mean something different to you based off whatever struggle or whatever conflict you may be having in, you know, that you're dealing with or whatever success you're dealing with, right? And it, those mean something different. So... Uh, we talk a lot about that when, during our staff meetings and we, you know, when the, I think it's really good that the sergeants are going over one chapter a month and, 
And they, they talk about like, hey, how does this apply here? How does this apply in your home life? How does this apply in your work life? You know, what, what's, go, what's going on with you right now? And the sergeants are the one that, that, that lead that discussion. And now, you know, now we figured out a way, okay, now all, all these classes post-certified, right? We have a general topics instructor leading the conversation. We have an outline for these. And it's like, okay, how can we get posted to, to bite off on this? We, we explain the why. And that's what I had to go back and do with that. And kind of circling back to what we talked about earlier, explain the why to post, wrote it out. And, and now everything's post-certified. Um, so that, we, you know, we, we do this and the title will be whatever chapter we're doing that, that month and, and how, how it applies. And I think that the sergeants, when I took a step back and I let the sergeants take over that program, it really got a lot, a lot more buy-in. That's where the, and, and not only he created the, the buy-in by giving ownership. Yes. And not only the sergeants, but like our dispatch leads and our record supervisor, they're the ones running the conversations in, in there. And, and those are all things that, you know, we need to make sure that as staff, they have, they have the tools that they need to be successful. So, um, and the online Academy has been great for that because it gives a framework. Well, you're, you've, uh, your department is such a great uh, representation that this stuff actually works, right, in so many different scenarios. One thing that I love is how you share this with others on our monthly uh, Extreme Ownership Academy live sessions. For We have those free first responder sessions that we do each month, and uh, we get hundreds of, of first responders from across the country and even a, a few from, from other, other uh, countries, Canada, Australia, you know, Europe as well. Um, it's been very interesting to see how your inputs, a lot of times there are people's uh, expressing frustration about their senior leaders or their chief. And, and so when you're giving your perspective on that, um, it's, it's, it's so invaluable for, for them to see that their chief actually wants them to be successful, right? It's yeah. that you know, there's, there's so much us versus them that, that comes, you know, comes from this. And, and, you know, Jock has been talking a lot about obviously resilience. And, uh, when, when, as I said, you, you guys have the, the hardest job in the world, and, and so you want to make sure that your people are resilient and can handle those kind of the stresses that they're under all the time. There's something in the, the power of extreme ownership. When you, when you take ownership of a situation, if, I'm, if you're my chief and I'm trying to lead up the chain to get us to adjust a tactic or bring in this piece of gear or, or train, you know, in extreme ownership or be a part of Extreme Ownership Academy or whatever it may be, and, and you're telling me no. Well, I can just be super frustrated. I'm in a hopeless situation. And yet, if I take ownership of my approach in that and I start to think about ways that I can go a little more indirect and make it be your idea or address some of the challenges, well, I'm, not, I'm no longer in a hopeless situation. I can actually lead up the chain. I can be effective. And I, to me, that, that even goes to even when bad things happen on the job. I was talking to um, a, a, a very skilled firearms instructor. Um, uh, last year who had uh, has was part of a safety incident where he put a round through his hand he, on the range. And uh, he was, he, he told me like, this is, I don't know if I could ever be an instructor again. This is, you know, this is something that I, how can I stand up and teach this stuff? You know, if uh, and tell people to be safe, if I've let something like this happen. And we sent him a copy of Extreme Ownership. And I said, this is the power of Extreme Ownership. But something like that, if, with, with you and your skill set 
um, and, and the emphasis that you put on safety, if that can happen to you, how easily can it happen to everybody else? And you're going to take this incident and utilize that to make sure that hundreds of people that you put through training, you know, over the coming years don't have that same thing happen to them. And, 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 you know, he just, it was something that just made him aware of the power of extreme ownership. This is a way that something that was, he was weighing so heavily on his mind. Well, now you can remove that weight and you utilize that as something, that, something good that can come out of that to train other people and utilize this incident to help others not make that same mistake. Um, that to me is the power of extreme ownership. I think that can help people through uh, some of their, their challenges when they feel like they're in a hopeless situation, leading up the chain or training their team or, or trying to you know, take ownership of something really bad that happened on the job. Yeah, it's liberating. And, you know, I, I go back to an experience that I had when I got my car crash. I told you about that. Uh, it was back in 1996, February 1996. I had a cadet in the car with me. He was a, he was a lieutenant for uh, our neighboring agency now. Um, but I was running radar, and we had the old Chevy Caprices with the LT1 engine, Corvette LT1 engine. Those things got some giddy up and go in them. And I was going way too fast for the conditions, and I – crashed the car. I, I totaled the car. Um, uh, they saved like a quarter panel and a door and a hundred percent. It was my fault. And, and I did the exact thing that that firearms instructor has the power to do. I go back to the Academy. And when I talk about responding to calls for service, I talk about that and where I screwed up. And then, and then a few months later, after that, I'm going to a call and an officer in, who no longer works for us anymore. He's driving like a bat out of hell through a residential neighborhood to get to this physical fight. And I'm like, little kid on the side of the road, two little kids over there and playing in the yard. I slowed way down because those that lessons learned in my head. And then after that, I'm like, hey, did you got did you see those kids playing? And he's like, nope. I'm like, oh, well, I just don't want you getting the same thing that I did. Because I mean, I ended up eating three days off without pay and I earned every single one of them. Um, I said, I just don't want the same thing to happen to me, happen to you. I mean, just, just got to slow down. And I use that as a learning experience. Could have ended my career. And if someone was coming up from the other way and I hit them, I'm probably not here talking to you right now. So the best thing I can do is share that, share that experience where I, I made a grave mistake in judgment. But what did I do from it? I, and I learned from it and took ownership of that mistake rather than blaming you know, well, was it, was it, were the roads wet? Yeah, they were. Was there gravel on them? Yeah, there were. But what was I doing? I was going too fast, right? It was a hundred percent on me. And as we're sliding up the hill, the, the cadet looks at me and he goes, uh, Hey Raj, I'm not wearing my seatbelt. And like slow motion in my head, I'm like, Oh shit. Right. And, 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 I, and, and and the next thing I know, we're hitting a juniper tree, and the airbag deployed and saved his life. And, and, but 100%, that was on me, my fault. And, we, and, and to me, that was liberating. When I look back at it, right, taking extreme ownership of that situation was liberating because it helped me move forward in my career. Because I could have done a couple, I could have, right, I could have been like, oh, this, I could have tapped out at any time. It's like, well... And I, I kind of felt at the moment admin was a little harsh on me, but it was like, no, I, I, I had all that coming to me, every, every ounce of it, uh, and then some. And if you don't take ownership of that, right, something that weighs heavily on you, right, yeah. for the rest of your days, yeah. particularly if some, you know, if, if, uh, 
if your trainee had been seriously injured, you know, yeah. in, in that situation as well. So, yes. um, but yet when you can take something bad that happened and, and utilize it for good to make sure that it doesn't happen to other people uh, and you can prevent bad things from happening going forward. I mean, that's the power of extreme ownership. 100%. Uh, and it, it, uh, it can help you. Everyone's going to make mistakes, but we can, as long as we learn from those mistakes, we put, we put solutions uh, in place to prevent those mistakes going forward. Um, it makes all the difference in the world. Well, that's what dichotomy talks about too. It's like, how do you balance things out? Right. How do you, how do you make those adjustments? And, you know, it's like, okay, be, be humble, but not passive. Right. Be, uh, you know, just make sure you're balancing things out. And it's like, okay, is there, there's a, cause there's a dichotomy to everything. So you just got to make sure that as you're, as you're going through things too, it's like, and that's why it's like when people get like, they focus like on, oh, it's extreme, right? It's like, well, that's why they wrote Dichotomy too, because there's, there's a follow-up book. There's, there's a part two, right? Only when it comes to taking responsibility it, should it, you be extreme. Yes. And yes. everything else, you should be balanced. It's like, hey, there, there's, a, there's a part two. There's a Terminator two, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> there, there's a part two. Uh, so I, I think it's important for, for people to understand that as well, like especially in law enforcement where it's like they, they think it's just about the one book, but it's not. It's about it's about the, the total package. It's about, you know, you look at the leadership loop and the OODA loop and you look at the, you know, the principles of extreme ownership. And, uh, you know, I like, I like what Jamie has to say, Jamie Cochran, when she says, if it's not your fault, find a way to make it your fault. And then if you can't find a way to make it your fault, find a way to how you can influence those things that can impact that. Because there's some way that you can tie that in. When you find a way to make it your fault, you usually realize that uh, it actually is your fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And those things, are, those things are true, definitely. Amen, right? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not only, you know, I look at this not only professionally, but personally, you know, it's, it's impacted me you know, a, a lot of different ways. And, you know, it's just opened a lot of doors and it, a, a lot more doors will open with the more ownership that you take on things. And it's just completely liberating for you to, you know, be able to teach out to others. I mean, I work it into my church lessons. I work it in with, uh, you know, with, with the student athletes up at Idaho State University. And in fact, a pretty cool thing happened is some of the, we've been going around to the local high schools and teaching them about uh, the dangers of fentanyl. And one of the classes, uh, asked me to come back and, and teach him some leadership stuff. So I was at, I was at a local high school teaching the, the leadership laws of combat to the, uh, to the, the government class. And so they, they, I got to go back and teach uh, part two to them because I got, I got all the way to simple and then ran out of time. So I got to come back and finish simple, get to decentral, uh, get to, or actually prioritize and execute. I got to finish prioritize and execute and decentralize command with them and, uh, and, uh, keep getting after it with those. And it's, kind of cool to watch the, the kids learning uh, uh, extreme ownership. And we're going to be doing a, a youth leadership program uh, this summer. So we got the laser taggers from, for FTX. I bought, I bought a bunch of those. So we're going to work that into this youth leadership program and, uh, and base it off the, the laws of combat. And it'll be like a week-long leadership, uh, leadership camp for youth. So I think I'm looking forward to that. And I got, I got one of my sergeants running that. So. That's outstanding. Yep. That'll be awesome. Any, any final thoughts you want to share with the audience here, Chief, of, about how you're taking applying this stuff, you know, guidance to applying it, uh, or thoughts, thoughts going forward? Yeah, you know, I, I would just recommend that as you, as you roll this out, if you're, if you're the chief or sheriff, don't be too default aggressive when you're rolling it out. Get other people to buy in um, on it. Don't be the hammer looking for a nail, right? Um, I think that that's uh, an error that I made early, early on. Explain the why. 
and make sure that you're uh, getting other people's perspectives. Be humble, um, listen to others, and uh, go out and lead. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much for your time, Chief. It's awesome to have you here. And uh, it is just, it's an honor to work with you as a leader uh, and your entire team at, at Pocatello PD. Uh, and it's an honor to be a part of that, even just a, a small part of that organization. Uh, and it's a testament to these principles that they actually work. Uh, and you guys prove that every, every single day. Thank and you. I thank you for all that you do and how you continue to take uh, your leadership lessons and spread them uh, to others as well. You're having influence across uh, the entire country with law enforcement groups everywhere. It's humbling to be down here and be invited to this and be able to share the message. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep.